Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I pray in these moments that you would prepare our hearts to hear your word. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit will come down, that he will speak. You will speak to our hearts this morning with the message you want us to hear. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill my heart, that I would speak your words in truth. I pray for those here gathered today, that we would continue to worship you by listening, listening to your word, that you would work on our hearts and help us to do your will. I pray that Christ will be exalted this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Imagine with me for a moment. Imagine that we're not gathered here today at Richmond in Madison County, at Ashland. But we're at a church in the Middle East. We're at a church in the Middle East, in Syria. We're actually the first Gentile church in existence. We're at Antioch in Syria. And it's not the year 2013. But it's only about 36 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are still people alive who saw him in the flesh. And we're gathered together, worshiping, praying, and fasting. And you look around and see this amazingly diverse church body that God has knit together by the power of the gospel. You see Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. You see dark-skinned believers from Africa. You see light-skinned believers from Asia. You see poor beggars coming off of the streets in their rags of clothing. You see finely dressed, important politicians who sit amongst the Roman elite all gathered together for one purpose, to worship the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. And as you're looking around, you see a bright young man named Saul. Or is it Paul? Saul, Paul. You're not really sure what to call him right now. You know anybody like that? Maybe they got a nickname. You're not sure if you're there yet with the friendship, if you can call them by their nickname yet. Maybe it's, they're a mister. You're not sure if you call them by mister or first name. Well, anyway, we got Saul. He's still Saul right now. Still a young man. Hasn't written any of his letters. You look around over and you, your eyes meet with Barnabas, old friendly Barnabas. He gives you a big warm smile, maybe a wink. So typical of that son of encouragement, Barnabas. And as you're gathered together, as we're all worshiping and praying and fasting, suddenly everyone stops. Total silence. As you hear with your own ears, the very Holy Spirit of God speak. And he says... Set apart for me, Saul and Barnabas, for the work to which I have called them. Well, the place must have just gone crazy. I mean, did, did you hear that? Did you hear? We've heard the words of God. The worship just ignites in passion as people are crying out to the Lord and fasting and praying. And as things begin to slowly settle down, everyone gathers together to lay their hands out on Saul and Barnabas to send them out. To what? Well, we didn't really know. Missions did not exist at this point in church history. There was no announcement before the service. And for anyone interested in going on the next mission trip to Athens, Greece, there will be a sign-up sheet in the hallway. The estimated cost is 125 shekels of silver and three chickens. So, no, none of that was going on. There was no missions at this point. All that Saul and Barnabas knew were that they were being sent out by God with the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim Jesus Christ. So I imagine they were very excited as they gathered up a few belongings and headed down to the port town of Seleucia. They're catching the next boat to head to Cyprus, the island in the Mediterranean where Barnabas was born and raised. And so they don't get on this big fancy cruise ship with nice fancy meals and shows. 
They get on this rickety wooden boat with all these other people, probably this big white sail, and they head off, and they land at the port town of Salamis. Where is it? Salami. Salami. I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Now that you're all thinking about lunch, we're going to go. They, they're there, and they begin preaching in the Jewish synagogues, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. They head off from there to Paphos, and from Paphos, they take a boat to Persia. Now, it's during this boat ride from Paphos to Persia that Saul says, you know what? I'm sick of this old name. I'm sick of this Hebrew name, Saul, this identity as the persecutor of the church. I'm a new man. I'm on mission for the Lord. I need a new creative name, something real unique, totally different than my old name. You know, I think my old name was Saul, maybe Paul. Paul, that sounds good. So Saul changed his name to Paul. What's really going on here is he's entering into more Roman territory. So he's going to start using his Roman name more. So now they're there. They head off to Antioch. This is a different Antioch. This is Antioch in Pisidia. And they're there, they begin preaching the good news of Jesus Christ in the Jewish synagogues, as is their method. Well, the Jews, those jealous Jews incite a persecution. They flee off from there to Iconium. Pretty much the same thing happens in Iconium. They flee off from there. Jews come and persecute them there. They head off, and now they're in Lystra. And as they're coming into Lystra, they're preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul and Barnabas, they see a crippled man laying by the way. He's crippled. Can't use his feet, can't walk, can't move. But Paul looks at that man, and he sees faith. To be made well. So he looks intently at that man. He says, stand upright on your two feet and walk. Well, instantly, man jumps up and starts walking. It's a miracle. I imagine that the people that were gathered around, their eyes must have just got enormous as they saw what had just taken place in front of them. Well, the text reads that they take one good look at Paul and Barnabas and the people cry out in their own language, the gods have come down to us. Zeus and Hermes in the likeness of men. They start crying out in Lyconium, worshiping Paul and Barnabas. Now, unfortunately for Paul and Barnabas, the iPhone with the Google Translator app wouldn't be invented for another 2,000 years. So they have absolutely no idea what these people are saying. Now, imagine they put two and two together when they started seeing all the bulls and oxen and blood flowing everywhere being sacrificed around. And they said, whoa, 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 guys, guys, what are you doing? We're just men like you. We're just mortal men. There is one true living God. Let us tell you about it. But the text reads that the people could be scarcely restrained from offering sacrifices to them. And now let's slow the story down as we've reached our text for this morning. And let us listen with the same sense of awe and amazement as God is going to speak in this room this morning. God has a message for us that pertains to our work in Cordova. And our work here in Kentucky. And that message is very simple. That message is persevere. Persevere, church. I want us to see today from the word of God what we are to persevere through. What we are to persevere through. What we are to persevere in doing. We are to persevere in doing. And finally, what we need to persevere. What we need to persevere. So let's look first with what we are to persevere through at verses 19 and 20. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Well, Paul and Barnabas, they just can't get rid of these guys. Jews come from over 100 miles away from Antioch and Iconium to persecute Paul and Barnabas, to put an end to this little evangelistic roadshow. Hear me today, Satan does not want the gospel to spread. 
Satan will use whatever means necessary to keep you from sharing the one message that can lead to salvations to all people. Whether that is persecution, stonings, imprisonments, torture. Or maybe here in the United States, it's something far more simple. Maybe Satan says, you know what? I don't have to persecute those American Christians. They're so comfortable that all I've got to do is whisper in their ear. No, no, don't share the gospel with her. Don't share the gospel with him. You know, you're going to feel nervous and awkward and uncomfortable. And you don't really know how to do it. You know, just, just don't share. For most of us, that's all it takes. I know for me, sometimes that's all it takes. Satan will use whatever means necessary. And here he has sent Jews from 100 miles away to come and persecute Paul and Barnabas. The text reads here that they persuaded the crowds. They persuaded the crowds. The very same crowds that days earlier were worshiping Paul and Barnabas as gods are now an angry mob beating Paul to a bloody pulp and leaving him for dead outside the city gates. What a remarkable change. How could this happen so quickly? Well, it shouldn't surprise us too much. We've seen this before, haven't we? Jesus Christ, the son of the true living God, comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. The crowds are gathered around crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then, just a few days later, those same crowds, the Jews in sight, to begin crying out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Now as Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, suffered unjustly at the hands of men, Paul and Barnabas find themselves in a similar circumstance. The text reads that they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. They turned into an angry mob. Many Jewish scholars say there were different methods that these stonings could occur. But in some cases... The victim would be held down, and the first person would gather up the largest stone they could possibly carry. They would take that stone and drop it directly onto the victim's head. Well, that would be enough to shatter the skull into pieces. So now others begin joining in, beating, pelting Paul with stones, sharp, large stones, until he is left outside the city in nothing more than a bloody heap of broken bones, of torn flesh, his blood is spilling upon the ground. There he lays outside the city. And the text reads that the disciples were gathered about him. Those first two words are important. It's the disciples. That means that in between the time when Paul and Barnabas entered into the city and were preaching the gospel, and in between when the Jews arrived and began persecuting them, that in that time, some people heard the gospel and believed. That's good news for us. That's encouraging to us. Listen, if you share the gospel, people will believe. We see it here in our text. We see disciples were made upon hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. We see it in court of a Peru. This year, three brothers and sisters in Christ, upon hearing the gospel, repented of their sins, placed their faith in Christ, and were baptized. If you share the gospel, people will believe. We find out later in Acts 16 that Timothy was one of those disciples made at Lystra. He may very well have been among that crowd looking upon Paul, a seemingly lifeless body. I imagine that some of the people may have been trying to help Paul. Maybe others were weeping, 
Some people were praying. But suddenly, before their own eyes, Paul rose up and entered back into the city where he had just been dragged out and left for dead. How did he do it? This is amazing. Did he just do it on his own power? Was he saying, well, glad that's over. Just faking the whole time. Got you guys playing possum. No, I don't think so. I really don't think so. I don't think that anybody could be stoned to such a degree that they're laying seemingly lifeless and then in their own health and strength say, hey, Barnabas, you know what? I'm in such good health. I think we should go to Derby tomorrow. And he wasn't getting dressed up and going to Louisville. He was taking a 58-mile journey to the next village so he could continue on his mission to preach the gospel. No, this was nothing short of a miraculous near resurrection by God, by the power of God, a near resurrection. Paul wasn't actually dead, but he was certainly knocking on death's door. He was almost there. And God, by his power, raised Paul from near death, enabling him to continue on in his mission, enabling Paul to persevere through persecutions through trials, through difficulties. I imagine that Paul, upon having this brush with death, when he got back up and realized he was in good health, that he must have been thinking, you know, I'm not dead. It's not over. I have work left to do. Because the very next day, he's planning his trip to the next village to go preach the gospel. I will never forget the moment when I realized I was completely alone in Peru. I was very fortunate for the first two months to have a team with me, but I knew when Pastor Jeremy came in August, he'd be taking the remaining people away, and I'd be left on my own. And so I took a bus from Lima down to Ica, the large city at the base of the mountain we must pass through to get to Cordoba. And I was sitting there waiting for public transportation to take me up the mountain. Now, if you've never had the pleasure of taking public transportation to Cordoba, there are two main methods. One is called a mixto, and it's Think of about half the size of a semi, large truck. And it's called a mixto because it's a mix of people, things, and animals. And sometimes this works out really humorously. But that day I was taking what's called a colectivo. That's a white station wagon, just like you might see here in the States. But instead of having a driver, a front seat passenger, three passengers comfortably seated in the back with their seatbelts on for five total, we'll pack anywhere from... Eight to ten people in these station wagons. You're all crunched up in there. Everybody's all nice and tight and warm. And you really get to know how the people smell next to you. And so there I was, busy street in Ica, waiting for seven other companions to join me in my station wagon ride. And I had my laptop and a few other things in my gym bag laying on my lap, having a conversation with the man next to me, when suddenly three men come around the corner, have their faces covered. One of them draws a pistol. The trigger points it directly at my chest. Well, I, I threw my bag off into their hands. They took off running away. No police of any sort to help. And as the shock began to wear away, as the panic subsided, I remember thinking, one thought just pulsating through my mind. He didn't pull the trigger. I still have work left to do. Armed robberies happen frequently in Ica, sometimes to the cause of death to the victim or serious injury. But there I sat in perfect health, a little shook up. But I knew that I was still alive and still had work left to do. I imagine Paul was had a similar mindset 
as he had this brush with death and was now back in good health. But what if Paul hadn't? What if he didn't have that attitude? What if he had a different attitude? What if he said, you know what, Barnabas? I'm sick of all these persecutions. We're getting chased out of every town we go into. I was almost murdered. You know, we've preached the gospel. Some people have believed. Let's just go home. This is too hard. It's too rough out here. It's too dangerous. Let's just give up and go home. What if we all had that attitude? What if we all just gave up when things got hard, when challenges in life came? What if you're in a circumstance where you've been trying to share the gospel with a lost neighbor or friend or family member for years? And you say, you know what? I just don't know what to do. I've been trying to share with them. They don't listen anymore. They change the subject when it comes up. They don't want to talk about it. It's just too hard. You know what? I, I just, I'm going to give up. I give up on them. I've tried. Or maybe it's a sin struggle. Men, maybe it's an addiction to pornography. You say, you know what? I've been trying to fight this sin for years. I try to resist, but when I get alone, I get in that circumstance, I just can't resist the temptation. You know what? It's not really hurting anybody, right? I just, I'm going to give up. Quit trying. Or maybe it's the body of believers that have been trying to plant a church in the Andes Mountains for seven years. We say, you know what? When are we going to give up on this Cordoba thing? We've been doing this for so long. We spent so much money. There's all these challenges and difficulties. There's this cultural barrier we don't really understand and this language barrier. It's dangerous down there. When are we just going to give up? It's so hard. Well, if we're trusting in our own power then we should give up. But if we're trusting in the power of God, then we have reason to believe Jesus Christ. When he says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. If we are trusting in the power of God, then we can persevere through trials, through difficulties, through challenges, by the power of God. We must persevere through challenges. That's the first point I want us to see. And now, second, I want us to see what we are to persevere in doing. We're going to see that as we continue on in verses 21 and 22. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Here we get a glimpse into what Paul and Barnabas were doing on their mission. We see what was their focus. What were they doing primarily? And we see here very obviously it states in 21, they had preached the gospel and had made many disciples. The Great Commission. They knew that they'd been sent out by Jesus Christ, commanded, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And here we find them on task, preaching the gospel, making disciples. So many of us, when we come to the Great Commission, don't see it as a command. Hudson Taylor, great missionary to China, once said, The Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It's a command to be obeyed. Many of us, when we hear the Bible say, go and make disciples, we think, well, you know, I'm I'm just not called to that. And there is certainly a sense where some people are specifically called for full-time mission work, full-time making of disciples. But at the very least, we are all commanded, every ordinary Christian is commanded to make disciples. 
So we have this idea that we can say, well, I'm, I'm just not called to make disciples. We don't use that logic with any other command in the Bible. We don't say, well, I know the Bible says don't commit adultery, but I don't feel called to be faithful to my wife. See how ridiculous that sounds? We don't use that logic. We can't use it here with the Great Commission. Or else I'll hear, well, I know the Bible says make disciples, but I just don't know how. Once again, we don't use that logic with other commands. We don't say, well, I know the Bible says don't lie, but honestly, I don't know how to tell the truth. Again, we can't use that logic. We can't say, we can't cop out and say, well, I don't know how. Our loving Father in heaven is never going to give us, his children, a command that we cannot obey. Just in the same way as you parents in this room this morning, especially the parents of a young child, of a toddler, you're not going to go home and look at your child and say, go mow the lawn. No one's going to tell their three-year-old to get out the hedge clippers and start clipping the bushes. We give them commands that they're capable of obeying. We say, pick up your toys. Listen to your mother. We give them commands they can do. In the same way, the Great Commission is a task that all of us can do. We can all make disciples. But what does that process look like? What does it mean to make disciples? Well, that Greek word disciple literally means learner or student. So we're to go and make students. That makes sense because Jesus told us to teach them to observe all that he's commanded. So we are in a role of a teacher. They're in a role of a student. And so this is going to work out most practically in the family. Parents teaching your children how to pray, how to read the Bible. In the context of the church, older married couples helping younger married couples get through the trials and challenges of marriage. It's a lot more simple than we tend to think. And so we see Paul and Barnabas on task here making disciples. And look with me at verse the end of verse 21. It says that they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. This is an amazing commitment to persevere in making disciples. They went back to the very cities where they had just been chased out and persecuted. And Paul had just been almost nearly murdered. They went back. Don't you think that maybe some outside observer might have said, Hey, Paul, you know, are you forgetting that you were just stoned and left for dead in Lystra? Why are you going back, man? It's so dangerous. It's too, it's too difficult. Don't go back there. When they had reached Derby, they were only about... only. 160 miles from their starting point in Antioch of Syria. It would have been very easy just to go right back. But instead, they backtracked over 500 miles through dangerous, difficult territory. Why? Because there were disciples there. They were committed to persevering in making disciples. In the same way, any of the mothers here in this room on Mother's Day know that after you've gone through Nine months of labor, gone through the the labor process and had this baby. None of you are just going to say, well, great, glad that's over. See you, baby. We'll leave you here at the hospital. We're going home. No, you're taking that baby home with you. That's when the work really gets started. You've got to love that baby and care for that baby and feed that baby. In the same way, once we have led someone to Christ, we can't just abandon them. Now that we have believers in Cordova, we can't just abandon them and leave. We have to begin the process of discipleship. Begin teaching them how to follow Jesus Christ. And so we see here what 
Paul was teaching his disciples. In 22, he says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. They were preparing them for the trials that were coming. And for these disciples, it shouldn't have been a surprise. They had seen Paul and Barnabas suffer. They knew what to expect. They didn't come in to the faith thinking, oh, now things are going to get easy. Now it's going to get a lot of blessings and health and wealth. That's why the prosperity gospel is such a lie. Jesus Christ never once promised us that it was going to be easy. In fact, he promises us that it's going to be hard. He says, if they persecuted me, you can guarantee they're going to persecute you. He says things like, in this world, you will have tribulations. He promises us that we will have tribulations and challenges. But he finishes that sentence. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. But behold, I have overcome the world. And that is our great hope. That Jesus Christ overcame the greatest tribulation. Suffering the wrath of God for your sins upon the cross. Jesus died on that cross. He was buried. And then God, by his power, raised him from the dead. Unlike Paul, Jesus actually died. He was buried. He lay dead for three days. But then God raised him to a new life. That by his death and resurrection, many could be saved. That that is the gospel we preach to lead people to Christ, that they may become disciples. Making disciples doesn't just happen overnight. There's a process that's involved. Many people say, well, that's great. Okay, the Bible says make disciples. Where's my disciples at? Well, disciples aren't just going to fall out of the sky. The stork isn't bringing disciples to your doorstep any more than the stork's bringing babies to your doorstep. There's a process that has to happen for a baby to be brought in this world. Don't worry, I'm not going to get into it. But in the same way, there's a process that must happen for a disciple to be brought in this world. And that process is called evangelism. We must share the gospel. As we've already seen, when we share the gospel, people will believe and be saved. And so Jesus Christ commands us, go, make disciples. Well, we don't all have to go across salt water to make disciples. Some of us just need to go across the street to our neighbor's house. Some of us just need to go to the next cubicle at work. Start getting into conversations. Start sharing the gospel with people. And as they believe, we begin discipling them. We begin teaching them how to pray, how to read the word, how they can share their faith. This is the beginning of the process that leads, is evangelism, that leads to discipleship. And we must, as Paul and Barnabas we see here, we must persevere through trials, challenges, and difficulties in making disciples. And now I want us to see what we need. What do we need to persevere? We're going to see that in our last verse, in verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We see here that they gathered the disciples into a church body, appointed elders for them as pastors. The words are similar there. So this is our goal in Cordova, Peru. We want to see a church where disciples are gathered together with a pastor leading them. This is our goal. And how are we, what do we need? What are we to do? Well, we see here the important role of, of prayer and fasting and missions. 
text reads, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord. A.T. Pearson, preacher, once said that every step in the progress of missions is directly traceable to prayer. Directly traceable to prayer. I see this. I know that you're praying for me because I see the fruit of it every morning when I wake up in court of a Peru. Many of you heard of Julian's conversion. One of the most exciting moments of my time in Cordoba was baptizing Julian. But many of you also know that Julian is a struggling alcoholic. He is recovering from alcoholism. And so he went sober for about a month after his baptism, but then he began drinking again. For 26 days. In April, Casey McCall let a team down. And we were struggling to figure out what to do. I had been praying for Julian. I'd been trying to call him to repent when I could, but nothing seemed to be working. Casey and I were struggling. We couldn't figure out what to do. Then, unbeknownst to me, Casey came back, announced to the church to start praying for Julian. He needed prayers. Well, about a week later, Julian stopped. Suddenly stopped drinking. I was so surprised. I was like, well, what happened? I hadn't changed anything. I wasn't doing anything differently. Then I find out from Pastor Jeremy that you all had started praying for Julian. And then I knew exactly why he had stopped. God had answered your prayers. Your prayers here in Kentucky changed the life of a man living in the Andes Mountains of Peru. There is power in your prayers. And after Julian sobered up and I was able to show him from the word, call him to repentance while he was in sin. I shared with him how y'all had been praying for him. He was just blown away. He said, they don't even know me. I said, right, they don't know you, but we are family now. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a responsibility to pray for one another. He was so amazed he wanted to to send a letter. I don't have time to read the whole thing, but I'll share... (laughs) Read the whole thing. Okay. Well, I've got to translate it because it's still in Spanish. <laughs> but he says, brothers and sisters, I'm here in Cordova and I am well. I am reading the word of God every day with my brother Eric. I want to send my greetings to all of you, my brothers and sisters in the United States. As many of you know, I had a fall into sin. But thanks to God, now I'm doing very well. I want to thank you for praying for me. Uh, Now I'm very happy and content with Christ. And I look forward to one day meeting you in Cordova or else in heaven. Julian Espinosa. That's true. One day we will worship side by side with Julian, with Carlos, with Jose de la Cruz, with these Christians in Cordova, Peru for eternity. And your prayers are the reason that God is working in Cordoba. The reason that people are coming to faith, believing, following Christ. We see the importance of prayer. Paul understood it. He was the greatest missionary that ever lived. And in most of his letters, he concludes by asking for prayers for himself. In Romans, labor alongside me in your prayers for me. He says in Colossians, pray for us, that God would open a door for us, that we will preach the gospel as we ought to speak. 
2 Thessalonians, same thing. We see here, Paul knew the importance of prayer. I have seen that as I've come to the end of my own abilities and strength. I see that I am dependent on God and dependent on you for your prayers to move God. And that's why I'm so thankful for your prayers. Why they're so important. We see here that Paul and Barnabas praying and fasting throughout the mission process. We see that they committed them. They committed the elders, the churches, the believers to the Lord in whom they had believed. They trusted them to the Lord. One day we will have to commit the work we've done in Cordova to the Lord. Trust him with this church there and leave. Move on. I love how this text ends. It reads that with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. In whom they had believed. What do we need to persevere? To persevere through challenges and trials? What do we need to persevere in making disciples? Faith in the power of God. Faith in the power of God. If we are evangelizing, sharing the gospel with that lost friend, co-worker, been doing it for years, it seems like nothing's getting through to them. We must trust in the power of God. Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. Not something magical we're going to say. It's going to be when God sends his Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin. So we must have faith that God will do that. If it's a sin struggle. We must have faith in the power of God. Men, if it is an addiction to pornography, use the power of God at work here in this community of believers. God's power is at work here. Get held accountable. Confess your sin. Pray for one another. Use the power of God at work here. Have faith in it. Or if it's in court of a Peru, where we've been laboring for so long, we think, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of progress. You don't have a church. We must have faith. We must trust in the power of God. Not in our wisdom, not in our strategies and ideas, but in God's wisdom, in God's power. We have faith in his power. We will succeed. We will succeed. We cannot fail. Finally, I want to give a message Anyone here in this room who has never truly experienced the saving power of Jesus Christ? You who are practicing cultural Christianity. You that struggle to read the word. You don't see any power in it. You don't even want to be here right now, maybe. You don't have any passion when you pray and you worship. We find out that later on, Paul and Barnabas would make it back to Antioch in Syria. They would gather the church together, share with them all that God had done, worship. Then Paul would be sent out again on his second missionary journey. He would finally make it on that mission trip to Athens, Greece. I don't know how many shekels of silver it cost or chickens. But he made it there. He was in Athens and he was preaching to the people. This man who had had a near brush with death, almost dead, God resurrected continue on in his mission. And now he's in Athens and he says to the people, the times of ignorance God overlooked. 
But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul, a man who had had a near brush with death, had a near resurrection, is now preaching Jesus Christ who actually died. Died for your sins upon the cross. Died and was raised by the power of God. A full resurrection. And now he's preaching Jesus Christ to a group of dead people. A group of spiritually dead people. They don't know that they're dead. You in this room. If you've never truly experienced the saving grace of God. You may not be aware that you are spiritually dead. Dead people don't know they're dead. Just go to a cemetery today. Look down at the grave and start asking people, hey, you know you're dead? You're not going to get a response. If you do, you should run really fast and get out of there. (laughs) Dead people don't know they're dead. If you are spiritually dead, you're probably not aware of it. But I'm here today speaking to you very clearly from the word of God. In Ephesians, which says that you are dead in your sins and trespasses. You are dead. And when you die a physical death, your soul will spend an eternity suffering in hell where you will always feel as if you are dying but never dead. But there is hope. You who are dead can be raised to a new life by Jesus Christ. If you will repent of your sins and believe on him, As Paul spoke to the Philippian jailer on his second missionary journey. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you that by your power we can persevere challenges and difficulties in making disciples. Thank you that we are saved by grace through faith. There is nothing that we have done to deserve it. God, I pray if there is any lost soul in this room this morning, that you will shake them. You will stir their heart. I pray for those of us with faith that you would enable us to persevere You would give us more faith, increase our faith, Lord, that we may do your will. May Christ be exalted by our lives on this day and every day forth. It's in his name we pray. Amen.